Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Andy Weir. He's a science fiction author. He's written The Martian, uh, Artemis, and uh, another book, you know, all great books. So, uh, Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I looked at your bio just you know, real briefly. I saw that I guess you were a computer programmer for many years. Um, what brought you into the world of uh, being an author? Well, I always wanted to be an author. Um, even when I was a teenager, that was like what I really wanted to do. But, um, I also just really enjoy regular meals. So when the time came for me to choose a profession, I went with, uh, software engineering, which I also really liked. I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I was a computer programmer for about 25 years. I, uh, managed to deftly and successfully avoid any attempt to put me in management or any authority over anyone else. And I got to just (laughs) stay uh, a code monkey, which is what I enjoyed. And, uh, you know, leaving that industry, that was a, that was a tough call for me. I mean, I mean, it wasn't a tough call. I was, you know, once I, my dreams came true and I got a book published and was successful, everything was great. But I stayed at my job for much longer than I probably should have. I was already like, the Martian was on the bestseller list, and I was still going to work every day at my software job. I, I really liked doing that. Wow. How did that uh, impact you, by the way? You know, you had a bestseller out, and you were going to work where people, like, you know, hey, how did you do this? Or, you know, what was the impact yeah. to you at work? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, everybody was rooting for me. They, I mean, they knew, they, they kind of, like, got to experience the whole process, because, you know, all my coworkers were my friends as well, and and stuff. And I'm like, Hey guys, you know, I'm getting, my book's getting published. I, oh, that's awesome. Hey, that's great. That's great. And it's like, you know, and then oh, every, everybody, like a bunch of my coworkers came to the, like I had this, yeah, I had some events around the release of the book um, in, in my local area and like a whole bunch of my coworkers came to them to cheer me on and stuff. They were all really, really jazzed for me. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. How did you get the idea for the Martian? What was it about uh, computer programming that, uh, you know, brought the story to your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't computer programming that did it. I, I was, um, I'm a nerd, you know, I, I, and, and I've always been a space dork. So um, I was thinking about how, how could we do, uh, you know, how could we put humans on Mars? How could we do that mission? Mm. Not, not for a book. I was just thinking about like, okay, how do I design that mission? How do, how do we get people there? How do we get them back? How do we make sure they don't die when they're on the surface if one thing goes wrong and all that stuff like that? And so I was just having fun doing that because that's the sort of thing I consider fun. And I started coming up with the, the, you know, the problem scenarios. What if this breaks? Okay, then they'll do this. What if that breaks? Well, then we'll do this. The mission plan needs to account for that, right? And the mm. hardware needs to account for, you know, it needs to have backups and backups to the backups and so on. Um, then I started thinking, well, what if these two things go wrong at the same time? What if these two things go wrong? That, you know, it's, it's error analysis that, you know, that every major mission has. And I started to realize the increasingly desperate things you would have to do to stay alive in, you know, some of these cases are like, might make for an interesting story. So I uh, created an unfortunate protagonist and um, and uh, subjected him to all of them. Hmm. And uh, so what happened when you published the book? Did you, did you get like a formal contract from 
you know, the book publishing company? And did you go in with the expectation that, did they tell you they loved it and they were really excited to publish it? Or was it a reluctance or what was the process like? Well, um, there was a, a weirder road than that. I started writing it originally as like basically a serial that I was posting to my website. So I was writing it a chapter at a time and just posting it online. And I got a small, I got a modest following from that, but it wasn't like amazing. It was, you know, I had about 3000 regular readers, which I'd accumulated over 10 years of writing short fiction and, and web comics and stuff like that and posting it to my site. And then um, uh, the Martian uh, people really liked it a lot. And so when I was done, I actually wrote and completed the whole thing just as a serial on my website over time. It took me three years. And then um, when, I, uh, when I was done, I thought, okay, well, that's it. I'll move on to my next little story. And people were, I kept getting emails from people saying like, hey, I love your story, but I don't like reading it in a web page. Can you just um, make an e-reader version for me and I can read it on my e-reader? I'm like, okay. Right. And I found out how to do that. It's pretty simple. And I posted that up there. And then other people emailed and said, like, hey, I see there's an e-reader version, but I'm not very technically savvy, and I don't know how to download a thing from the internet and put it on my e-reader. So can you just put it up on Amazon so I can get it through their system, because I know how to do that. So I figured out how to do that. It's simple. Amazon just takes a percent, well, the lion's share of the sale price, and, and you get, you know, like 35%, I think is what it was for Kindle right. Publishing, just an e-book, no print edition, nothing like that. And I posted it up there and said, there you go. And I, I set the price to the minimum that Amazon allowed, which was 99 cents at the time. I don't know if that's still hmm. the case, but that's what it was at the time. And uh, it started selling really well. I mean, people just, it, it took off and it, and it, um, it just, you know, over the next few months, it went from like, no one had heard of it to like everyone was reading it. And it had so much popularity that, that I was approached by a literary agent and then by publishers and, and by the movie studios and just, Everyone was uh, on board with with making that book. They were they were enthusiastic about it because there's nothing you know there's nothing a publishing company likes more than a proven seller, right? They right. they saw how well it was selling on Amazon and they said, well, we think this will sell well in bookstores too. And yeah, they were right. Hmm. Okay. And then what uh, what happened from there? How did the jump come to where uh, you know Matt Damon was your became your character and there was a whole big movie about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a dream come true. You fantasize about these things, but you never think they'll actually happen. I, I, you know, I wrote the Martian for this tiny little audience of uh, what I thought was a tiny, tiny niche audience of hardcore dorks, which were my regular readers. And I thought this is a group of people who will actually enjoy seeing all the math explained in a book. I had no idea like, you know, that it would have mainstream appeal. So I still don't really know what I did right there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so actually Fox approached us, I say us, me and my agent, um, uh, approached us for the film rights, um, uh, like before the book had even come out. In fact, we were still negotiating with Random House on the print rights. So the book deal and the movie deal were being negotiated at the same time. And they mm -hmm. came together, the two days, the two deals came together four days apart. <laughs> Wow, so it was cool. a whirlwind, but that was a film option. I mean, um, you know, studios buy film options all the time. It's not like, it's not, it's not unusual at all. Like uh, any book that's even remotely successful gets optioned. Um, and they give you a small mm -hmm. amount of money so that they're, they have the exclusive ability to, bu to buy the rights from you for a short time. So anyway, but yeah, uh, all the stars lined up and everything just worked out perfectly. We ended up with a 
a great screenwriter and then a great lead, Matt Damon, uh, the screenwriter, uh, Drew Goddard, uh, then a great lead signed on, Matt Damon, and then just an incredible director signed on. Um, well, two incredible directors, really. First, we had Drew Goddard set to direct, but then he left the project to go work on a uh, on a superhero movie for Sony. And then um, uh, he didn't leave the project. He decided against directing it. It's not like he was like violating a contract or anything. And then, uh, and then we ended up with uh, Ridley Scott, of course, which is amazing. Once Ridley yeah. Scott and Matt Damon were on board, uh, it was pretty much a done deal. I mean, after that, they started saying, well, we're going to throw like $100 million at the production on this. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. What was it, what was it like, um, you know, when you saw how the movie was, uh, was being made? Did you have input into... Oh, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to change that. You know, leave this in there or you do what you want, guys. Like, what was that process like? Well, my only job on the film was to cash the check. Um, they don't like, you know, the writer of a book has no say. Well, that's not entirely true. If you're a, if you're a big shot like J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, then you can start throwing your weight around and put it into the contract that you get certain creative control, but not if you're Andy Weir. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was just an observer, an excited observer on the sidelines. They kept me up to date, and they chose to include me. Um, they didn't have to, though. Uh, mostly, uh, I was like a, a technical resource. Like um, Drew, when he was writing the screenplay, he was on the phone uh, with me almost every day to just ask technical questions, sometimes creative, but almost always technical stuff. Like, okay, explain the science on this to me here so I can understand it while I'm writing the scene. And then during production, I had a few technical questions come through from Ridley Scott. Um, all of his questions were technical stuff, though. He, it's not like Ridley Scott needs my creative advice. Um, and yeah, so I was just on the sidelines, excited, you know, but I, I certainly had no authority or say. And um, any involvement that I had was purely because they chose to involve me. But it was awesome. <laughs> what about the, the finished product? What did it feel like to, oh. uh, you know, to go and see it and but, everything? Oh, it was amazing. Like the first time I saw it, I, uh, it was, um, Fox brought me into, uh, you know, they have the, it, at the studio sites, they have the, these little theaters, right? Where they can do test runs and show it or show it to executives or show it to, you know, people like insiders, right? It's not, they're not theaters. Mm -hmm. They're, they're little room theaters that seat like 40. And, um, <clears throat> I was in one of those and they also, uh, invited a bunch of people from JPL because, uh, Fox is in Century City and JPL is in Pasadena. So they're really close to each other. And so they oh, invited, cool. uh, people who worked at JPL to come watch it with me. And it was, a it was a, a, uh, a production cut. It, um, it had, it, the editing wasn't done on it. Uh, there was placeholder art in a lot of places, like just these grainy JPEG images of Mars instead of like the actual CGI. A lot of the effects weren't done. Like you'd often see people just like floating in front of a green screen with big black cords holding them up and, you know, or whatever else, right? You, you, I mean, a lot of the effects oh, yeah. were still had to be done. And you could see the motion capture dots and green screens in the background and all that. But I tell you what, like, the first, that was my first viewing of it. And just like, I mean, when the title placard came up, I, I just was already welling up. I mean, I was crying. It was just <laughs> such an incredible moment for me. It was like, I can't believe this is actually happening. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. It was fantastic. And what about and I love the, the adaptation. When the full production came out, you know, hopefully they gave you like free popcorn or something and you saw it again. 
But um, was that any different? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, well, I, I have seen The Martian so many times, like I, I, I don't want to watch it anymore. Um, mm. uh, I ended up, I think I've seen it like about 10 times, all in 2015 and early 2016, just because I was doing marketing events and, and, and um, you know, publicity and marketing events for the film because they had me, you know, doing that. The, the studio had me doing that stuff too. So every one of these events was like, Hey, join us. And like with Andy and a couple of the cast members and, you know, first watch the Martian, then uh, autographs or whatever else. But every one of them included like watching the Martian. And so I'm like, okay, another opportunity to watch this film I've seen nine times. You know, but <laughs> it's a, it, uh, it, it was awesome. It, it was quite a ride. And then we got nominated for Oscars. So I got to go to the Oscars. That was really cool. <laughs> So has this, uh, how does Artemis and uh, your other book, I, the name escapes me, sorry, how did that play into the timeline? Where were those? Uh, uh, there is no, those there is no other book. So Artemis is, I've only got two books out there. So. Okay. Okay. Um, when, uh, go ahead. Yeah. When, when was, uh, so how did Artemis come to be? Was it at the same time that all this was going on? You know, had you stopped writing? Were you waiting or what, what were you doing while this was happening? Well, while this was happening, I was just doing that. I mean, it took up all my time. The the uh, publicity tour and push for the film eats up all your time. It's like nonstop travel. It actually was very, very tiring, but, you know, mm. awesome at the same time. Um, but as for uh, Artemis, well, so after The Martian, after the book was a bestseller and all that, you know, Random House said, like, okay, we are definitely interested in your next book. And I had this story that I was working on called Jek. Z-H-E-K. And um, it was about aliens invading Earth. It was soft science fiction. It wasn't the, you know, hardcore math stuff like The Martian. It was much more, you know, like Independence Day kind of stuff. Right. And um, I'd been working on that. And I had some what I considered pretty cool ideas for it. And uh, so the publishers, I pitched it and the publisher said, that sounds good. And, you know, get to work. And I worked on it for about a year and I got about 70,000 words into it. Um, for reference, The Martian's about 100,000 words long. Uh, so I was like, you know, a good, you know, 70% of a book done. And yeah. I just had to stop because it just wasn't working. Like the story wasn't coming together. The characters weren't interesting. The plot threads were wandering in all sorts of random directions. I could not think of a way to tighten it up or make it better. And I eventually asked, I mean, I tried and tried and tried and struggled with it. I was really stressed out. And I finally asked the publisher, hey, can I ditch this and write something else instead? And they said, yes, because they had been reading the chapters, too, and they, they knew that I, had, I was struggling. So, um, so then I, you know, clean slate, blank slate uh, came up with Artemis. And I'd been thinking about that while I was writing Jack. I'd been thinking about Artemis as my next novel, maybe, or something like that. But so I got to work on Artemis, and I eventually I put together a pitch for that. And random health like that. So, um, so we did Artemis instead. And I'm so happy that I did because Jack would have been a bad book. And so it ended up costing me a year of time and a little bit of political capital with my publisher. You know, whatever whatever brownie points I built up, I ended up spending some of them because I, you know, basically worked for a year and then threw the book away and wrote another one. Sure, they would have rather I hadn't done that, but. Uh, in yeah. the end, the product was much better for it. So we're all happy with how that how that went. <laughs> how did you, um, you know, what, what I've noticed, and this doesn't apply to everybody, but 
if um if I'm in a field, let's say I'm a doctor and I watch ER, you know, I've heard from people that are in a particular field, they watch a show or a movie about it and they hate it because they say, Oh, it's so inaccurate. It's ridiculous. Yeah, you know? yeah. That, uh-huh. I don't I don't it doesn't seem like you got that kind of pushback from JPL or any of the people oh, involved. No. It seemed pretty real. So how did you yeah, yeah, avoid well, that trap? Well, I am a science dork, right? So I, I, it was really important to me to be as accurate as possible. And so um, I did everything I could to make the science correct. First off, I, I, this is my passion, my hobby, my interest, right? So everybody's knowledgeable on their own hobbies, of course. Mm. Like if you're a baseball fan, then you know all about, you know, baseball statistics and stuff like that. So you start off, if you're writing something that you're passionate about, you start off with a lot more knowledge than the layman, right? And then also tons and tons of research. The space industry is very, very easy to research because um, it's all in the public domain. It's all, there's no secrets, there's no government secrets or, well, I mean, I suppose there are government secrets, things like spy satellites and stuff, but the technology and how propulsion systems work and all that stuff, it's all very public. And, you know, scientists are proud to be part of it. People not just scientists, anybody involved in the space industry is very proud of being part of it. And they make web pages about it and they talk about what they work mm-hmm. on and stuff. So the research into space stuff is very, very easy. Just start with Google and work outward. Um, uh, so yeah, no. And the response from NASA and JPL was just overwhelmingly positive. They, I mean, there are mistakes and there are kind of, uh, th- there are a few mistakes in the Martian and there are a few like hand wavy bits where I just kind of like, ignore problems that would have come up type of stuff. But for the most part, I think they're just so pleased because it, it comes so much closer to scientific uh, reality than other films that feature NASA. I remember uh, one, one guy at NASA, one of the best compliments I got was he's a flight director or a former flight director at NASA. That's the person who's in charge of mission control. So like uh, remember Ed Harris and Apollo 13, yeah. Um, he, he played Gene Krantz, who was the flight director for the Apollo 13 mission. Anyway, um, uh, one of the, uh, one of the NASA flight directors said, like, um, normally when I read science fiction books, it's even science fiction books that take place at NASA, I'm like, yeah, whatever, whatever. It's just a thing. But, but when I was reading The Martian, I was getting progressively more and more stressed out because it just seemed like, <laughs> oh, oh, that could happen. Oh, yeah. And that is what we do. Oh, and and he was just like really like really going like, oh God, this is a horrifying concept. Like this is a thing that could happen to me, you know. <laughs> That's funny. So I thought that was cool. So, so why why do you think uh, so many writers either don't go to that length or I don't know? I mean, how could you write about something if you're not interested in it? And why would you make it so? Not you, but why would people make it so radically different from reality? Well, everybody writes what they're interested in, or that's what you should do. You write your passion. Don't I mean, if you don't give a crap about the subject material, why are you writing a book about it in the first place, right? Um, everybody writes what they're interested in. It's just different people have different interests. So for people who write the non-accurate science fiction, they're not interested in the science behind the science fiction. They're interested in the story that they can tell. So you take something like, you know, Armageddon. Well, it's an action movie. It's, it's you know, humanity versus nature. It's it's about the characters. It's about like Bruce Willis and, you know, and, and it's about saving Earth and, yeah, you know, pesky things like physics and science that get in the way of the plot have to be, you know, thrown away because they have a story to tell about, you know, kind of blue collar action heroes. You know, someone once asked, 
you know, in our, uh, during the production of Armageddon, they said like, well, instead of teaching oil rig workers how to be astronauts, wouldn't it be easier to teach astronauts how to do oil rig working? You know, <laughs> and like everybody just kind of ignored that comment. <laughs> it's about it, 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 it's about what kind of story you're writing. You know, take something like you know Star Wars. Star Wars is a fantasy tale. It has sword fights and wizards and, you know, all that stuff like that. It has a science fiction sheen on it, and it's an excellent story. But they weren't, you know, George Lucas wasn't telling you the story of scientific development and a future or something like that. He was telling you an epic tale um, that happens to be in a world where uh, there are spaceships and stuff. But he had no no desire or need to obey any laws of physics. True, yeah. So, I mean, this is the million-dollar question. What, what do you think made The Martian so popular? And, you know, how do you recreate that with the future work? Do you think Artemis right. did, uh, did it have the same you, response uh, or not and why? You know? I will give you $10 if you can give me a definitive answer to that. Um, <laughs> I think there's a few things. First off, I, I, I feel like I found a niche audience in that like um or not so much a niche audience but a, a a market niche in that almost nobody else is doing scientifically accurate science fiction right now so anybody who wants that basically they have to come to me um there are a few other authors doing it but not many um so it's a it's a it may be a fairly small market but it's a little market that i completely own and then they recommend it to their friends and so on and so forth the other thing is um, I think people really liked or people really liked the main character, Mark Watney. They liked the humor. If you make the, your reader laugh out loud, then they'll read anything. I mean, they'll read anything. The story could be awful. It could have, but it doesn't matter. If you make them laugh, then they will love your book. And then the last yeah. thing I think um, was that science fiction has been kind of co-opted lately by these extraordinarily negative and depressing stories. Like usually, um, like most science fiction nowadays is these is dystopia. It's all like the Hunger Games and Maze Runner and Divergent. And it's always about horrible fascist governments that can only be overthrown by teenagers doing weird crap, right? Um, right. And, and it's so relentlessly negative. Science fiction has become just nonstop negativity and technophobia and the world is going to be miserable in the future and technology is just going to aid in that misery and and the martian and, and that's well not, not just the martian artemis too it's like that's i don't i don't do that i i i have um I'm, maybe i'm a bit of a pollyanna but i have a very positive view of humanity and i like technology and i think that the world just as the world uh, the quality of life on this planet has gone up and up and up for the past five millennia, I think it'll continue to go up as we go forward in time. I don't think we have a dark, miserable fascist scape ahead of us. I think people 50 years from now will almost universally agree that life is better than it was back in 2018. Um, so I think people hadn't seen a lot of positive portrayals of the future in an uplifting, hopeful film. Because it's everybody versus the elements. It's everybody working together, trying hard to save one guy. There's literally no antagonist other than Mars itself. And so I think people wanted to feel good when they when they had science fiction, and and the market wasn't giving that to them. So I kind of think yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Do you feel like um, 
I mean, how much did you know already and how much did you learn or have to learn in order to, to write that story? Oh, well, I mean, I knew a, a fair amount, right, because I'm a space dork, but I had to do a ton of research. Um, I, was, I was just Googling around. I, I would say I spent about half, about half the total time I spent writing was actually me doing research. <laughs> wow. But it's and easy to do. And I also, I enjoy research, so, you know, maybe yeah. I went further down the rabbit hole than I needed to. So, um, you know, what are you working on now? What's your, uh, you know, you're working on a book right now or another story? Are you in research mode? Uh, I'm in decision mode. I have a few different um, ideas that I'm putting. Well, I have a few different ideas and I, I haven't yet decided which one to pitch. So right now I'm not, not working on any one specific book. I'm working on what I like to do is with my ideas, I like to write chapter one and then see how it feels. Right. And see if I would like to go on from there. So that's kind of I'm trying to decide by writing some chapter ones, which of my story ideas would be the, the one I want to write next. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, very good. Um, so what's uh, you know, what's a good way for people to find out more about your your next book? I'm sure once you do one they're they're all over you to write like every book. you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I have a, a Facebook and a Twitter that I that I would update anyone on. Um, it's, um, I think, uh, Facebook is at Andy Weir author and I think Twitter is also at Andy Weir author or, well, wait, Facebook, you know, Andy Weir on Facebook, Twitter is at Andy mm. Weir author. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a Luddite on social media, but I do keep up with those accounts, just, uh, posting things about professional stuff or anything that I think is interesting in space news. Um, yeah. Other than that, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it would it would it would show up in in various news feeds when the next book is announced. <laughs> any any hints on what you're deciding between you know topic wise? No, I'm going to keep that close to the vest for now <laughs> because um, well, I don't want to talk about a book and have people expect it and then it turns out not to be the next book. You know what I mean? That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Well, very good. Well. I'm, Looking forward to seeing more stuff from you soon and, um, you know, whether you release it again in blog form or just, you know, following <laughs> book form. But uh, I appreciate your time on the podcast today. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.